My name is Chris Pate. If you're new, I am the lead pastor here, and we are, you are here for the middle of a series called The Gospel, and we are going through different cultural things. Uh, with So far, we have hit the gospel and mental health, and then we had a panel after that talking about your questions and answering your questions. We did the gospel and sexuality, then we did a panel last week in about an hour and a half answering questions for YouTube online as well if you want to hear more about our responses to your questions. So we actually went through all of them. This week we are starting part one of the gospel and race. You know, we're not afraid to hit the hard subjects, might as well. And uh, that's what I am going to speak about today. But before we do that, I do want to remind you, mentioned in the video, we, we have kind of a rhythm that we do with this series because we want to have some dialogue. And we have an awesome team called DNA, which stands for Dialogue News and action. And so that team hosts our rap sessions. And rap sessions are opportunities on Friday night. The next one's coming up October 14th, where after this conversation and next week we do a panel, we get to have roundtable discussions about race, share where you are, and it's a great time to have civil conversations and be able to get to know each other better. And so it, it, we really want to invite you to come out. You can register, and then for your kids, you can register them, and they will be back at Kids Ministry watching a movie, and we'll be taking care of them with pizza and all that. So make sure you come to that. In the meantime, I want to do like we've done the past couple weeks in this series is get your phone out, okay? In church, yes, get your phone out. And don't be tempted by the gram, but put your phone up here. And we have a QR code, and that takes you to the website for the Gospel and Race Q&A. I'm asking now, even as I'm talking um, throughout this week and next week we'll have this available, if you have any questions that you're going, I want to know more about what this church believes or what you think or, or just have something dire to ask, if you go and ask that on there, it's really, really helpful. You guys have done a great job the past two times we've done this, a lot of great questions, and we are going to get to as many as we can live and then do some uh, online as well or try to finish them up. But here's the thing. If you're uh, like a lot of people, you're going, you know, I, I don't even know what question I have, but you might go on there still and see questions that you like. The great thing about Slido, the website that we use, if you click like, it takes the most liked ones to the top so that we can hit the most popular ones or the people that, the, the, the ones that people are asking the most questions about. So we want to encourage you, whether you're going to ask a question or not, go ahead and go to that link, start the conversation and help us help you. Today, though, as we talk about the gospel and race, I, I don't have time, a 30, 30, 35 minute message, right? I don't have time to spend to go back over some of the horrible history of our country, from slavery to Jim Crow. Though I, I believe and we believe as a church, we shouldn't try to airbrush over it away, airbrush over it away of hidden history in teaching. We need to talk about it. But we don't have time to do that today necessarily, nor, of course, uh, do we forget the horrible history of a lot of the Christian church. And much, much of its history has been horrific, to say the least. Not all, but much. And, and that having little to do with what Jesus claimed to be and who Jesus was. Where slavery was embraced, segregation was celebrated, and even defended in the church. Today, though... 
I want to talk about what the scriptures say about race in general and how ultimately, especially by the end of the message, we see how the gospel of Jesus gives an incredibly high, beautiful scenery and view of what the church should be in regard to race and this new community that includes every nation. That's what I want to talk about today. So the church, let's start in Galatians 3, 28 quickly. Apostle Paul wrote this. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean we don't see or acknowledge color. We don't come up here and say, we're colorblind as Christians. We, we think that is extremely offensive. Um, and the gospel is actually best told in technicolor, the beautiful color that we have, the nations that we represent, the cultures that are represented. However, we want to make sure that we are looking at the deeper identity and our unity in Christ in regards to race. Now, Galatians 3.27, the scripture before, Paul says this, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, notice we have water baptisms, we're doing next service, uh, we have about eight people that we get to baptize today, get to celebrate that together. He says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Do we know what a radical community actually looks like and means? If Jesus were to actually get a hold of race relations, race divisions, racial reconciliation, reconciliation racial everything, what would it actually look like? We see this through scripture. But let's go back to the beginning. Now, we did this when we talked about sexuality because it's important to look at the beginning. This is how the Bible begins the racial conversation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 27 says this Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock. Over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. In those verses, you see the grand creation narrative that starts off the whole biblical drama. We talk a lot about story here. The story of the Bible. And the beginning is very crucial to understand the means so you don't get off. And we find kind of three amazing statements here. First, we see, and we have to start here, we were made. We were created. We can have all kinds of discussions that can be fun about how we were created, but the Bible is really silent on that. It tells us that God did it but not necessarily how he did it. So the real divide for us isn't between creation and evolution. We've done a whole series on gospel and science. Check out the archives. But between a naturalistic view of the universe that sees nature as all that there is, 
matter and energy, that's it, versus the theistic view of the universe that remains very much open to the existence and activity of God. Christians ultimately are theists. We believe that God created human beings, and we don't, we don't blush about that as a people. We believe we were wonderfully, carefully designed the entire creative process, whatever it was, that it was beautiful, it was miraculous, it was supernatural, and it was generated and guided by a living, active, engaged God. If God used some sort of evolution as a part of the creative process, fine, so be it. We believe in, in a kind of, we, we understand things evolve, right? We see that. And so we can cross hairs about micro versus macro evolution, all that kind of stuff. But that's not what we're doing today because we're coming as people believing that God created. So this doesn't mean that there wasn't an original Adam and Eve. Jesus spoke of Adam and Eve. So as a follower of Jesus, we would have to trust him and his words that there was as well as the biblical narrative. We believe that God breathed an actual soul, which is a, an interesting and beautiful concept. We could talk about that if you have some good questions next week. That soul that he breathed, he breathed it into, and that process marked the beginning of what's known as the human race as we know it today. And this is really a clear teaching of the Bible. But we're not just made or just created. The story of creation ultimately throws out Another idea, and a couple more that we're going to see. Not only are we made, but we are also made in the very image of God. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The term you hear a lot from churches, the Latin term, the imago Dei. This means that when God ultimately made us, he put, think about this, he put something of himself in us. I don't know about you, but that's amazing to me. He gave us this kind of spark of the eternal, a portion of the divine. Now, that doesn't mean you are God or you are divine. Run from those teachings. But he gave you a portion of the divine. You don't want to be divine, by the way, um, because then you are your own savior. And I haven't met a good human savior besides Jesus, who was fully God and fully man. There's more to this spark than just intelligence. There's more than just a consciousness, even though that's miraculous. This is more than just an ability to kind of think, to be able to reason, which is good, or grow and develop. A lot of times we just confine this breath, this soul to those things. But actually, Scripture teaches that being made in God's image means that we don't just have consciousness and intellect, but we have this thing called a soul. The Hebrew word is nefesh, and it actually is like a mixing of the body and the soul of the immaterial and the material together. And, and this allows humans to do one of the main things we're all called to do, and that's live in relationship with God. This thing is about who we are, and ultimately this is decided through who we are what we are, made in the image of God, and understanding this, that God himself is community. He is, think about this, he is relationship. He is relational. Did you notice the strange grammar in the scripture that we read earlier? 
It uses this term us for God. Let us. And there's a lot of discussion that could go here, but, but there's hints, there's many references that you could look at multiple gods, all the kind of thing, Elohim. We've talked about that in the past. But what it does do is hint to the triune nature of God, the Trinity, three in one. We don't have time to discuss the Trinity, but the Trinity being God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is God in community. Three persons in one being, not three different gods, but three persons who are one God. Now, this thought might for you, like it does me, blow, blow you away and like, okay, that just sounds like an alien movie. Um, that sounds like something that, that you're just making up. And it should mess with you. And it should be good that it messes you, because think about it. It's a mystery, and, and that's okay if you say, well, that's not fair, it's just mysterious. This needs to be something that goes beyond our rational faculties. And we can't just let it bother us that it goes beyond our rational faculties as if we know everything or can understand everything. Because if you could actually understand everything, there was about the nature and existence of God. God would no longer be bigger than your intellect. And I'm sorry, that's a really, really small God. Now, that not, might not be your favorite argument, but it is an argument. And this is how the scripture portrays God. This is who he says he is. So, because God is himself a community, a oneness, he created us then also to be a community as well. He created us to be with each other, but most importantly, with him, number one. Nothing else in all of creation, excuse me, as we know it, carries the same kind of standing or holds the position of bearing the image of God. No plant, no animal, not reptiles, not insects, not fish, not birds, certainly not cats. Sorry, Scott Fiddler. That's for the cat lovers out there. But you would agree with that. Amen. Humans are different. We were made to be in community with our creator primarily. And you know what this means. If it's actually true, then you cannot be fully human. You can't be who you are. You can't find yourself in what you do and in all of these things that we try to do it apart from God and a relationship with him. Os Guinness, a great writer and theologian, says this. Our primary calling, primary, is not to somewhere or to something, but to someone. If being human means that you're made in the image of God as we're seeing, you're made by God for a relationship with God, then you'll never really fully have an experience of humanity until you are in that relationship. So for some of us that are maybe still tire kicking, uh, the, a bunch of this stuff and spiritual things, you're trying to figure things out or you don't know where you are, or maybe you've been hurt by the church or hurt by this and, and all of the voices and things in the world, you've got to understand that the Christian's perspective is that you were made for a relationship with God. And actually going after any other purpose apart from God is searching for answers where you'll never really find any Here's what it also means, that every single person in this room, look around the room for a second, every single person, you can look at your spouse and stare into their eyes. Maybe it's the first time you look in their eyes and not your phone in a long time. Wow, is this a marriage sermon? Uh, 
Every single person is made in the image of God and has infinite value. Infinite value. Every person. It doesn't matter what color their skin is, how much money they make, where they live in the world, or the state of their mental or physical capability. Every human being is of infinite value and significance. And here's what you've got to understand. Some of us know that or heard that, but this single one idea is radical and not held by most worldviews. You have to get this. Even when we talk about things like justice, that is a primarily Christian idea because it values the person over the thing. This Christian worldview, it holds that we were created, and because we were created, there's value in each person. Versus, we just came, there's just matter and material, and you're only valuable if you contribute. There is meaning and purpose to every single life. Here's what it also means. That there's someone, think about this, there's someone above and outside of our existence who stands over it as authority in defense of the value of each person. And I want you to see this on the screen. I made sure it's on the screen. God is a defender of the value of every person. This is what scripture says. You do know that behind this heart, Behind this worldview was Martin Luther King Jr.'s message to America. He did not come up with something. This is from a Christian worldview. Different people read scripture wrongly to defend other things in race in our country, as we spoke earlier. But Martin Luther King read it through a gospel lens. And we should really read his writings, I think, Everyone should read the letter of Birmingham Jail that I'm going to mention here. And you will see this deep Christian worldview within just a small paragraph of his writings that he's writing from Birmingham Jail. Here's what he says. There are two types of law, just and unjust. A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law of the law or the law of God. That's over man, is what he's saying. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Where does that worldview come from? Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. That is a Christian worldview. That is a God who created man and women in his likeness who defends the very value and purpose of each person. His argument was based on the worth of every human being that's bestowed on them by God, regardless of what other humans might have to say about them. King laid claim to the law that's above man's law and a value system 
that is above man's values. As we said earlier, there's not another worldview that has this same type of understanding, and yet we want to kind of pick and choose. I'll take this, and then I want a little bit of this. But we see not only are man created, we see that God was intentionally put his image in us, but we kind of have this third statement that they were male and female. Again, we talked about this in sexuality, but it's worth noting, and what gets repeated gets remembered often. When God creates humans, he was very intentional about creating diversity. He created the male and female. He deliberately made us a race of humanity, men and women, and then divided us into those particular categories, but both with the imago Dei, the value and the purpose and the defense of God. But it's not just about diversity, even though that's important, and we're big on that in our church. There's this individual, unique thing about each human being that's, that's even beyond sexuality. God made us humans, humanity. The Hebrew word is Adam, Sometimes when it says Adam, it's not just talking about the man, it's talking about humanity. In his image, men and women. But he gave us these unique characteristics as men and women. One professor and pastor, Dr. James Emery White, says this, Every human being who has ever been born is one of a kind. No one has your fingerprints. No one has your vocal pattern. No one has the pattern of blood vessels in your retinas or the features of your irises. No one even has the outside shape of the rim of your ear that Apple is trying to get perfect with AirPods. (laughs) Out of 7 billion plus people on this planet, you are the only you. Doesn't this feel like Sesame Street? But it's true. And not just the seven billion living right now, you're the only you that has ever been will ever be. But that's not all when it comes to diversity for us. You have a skin, and that skin has a color. Some of us are white, some is black, some is brown. As the children's song says, Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children. But why? Because he made those children. He made their skin. It was purposeful. He is sovereign over them. I want to show you a video. It's about three minutes long. And it gives kind of a brief but very simplified understanding of this idea of race through the lens of Scripture. Check this out. I hear this one a lot. How can there be so many races in the world if we are all descendants of Adam and Eve? Well, check this out. First off, let's talk about the word race. Sometimes when people use the word, they mean supposed races of people who have evolved at different times, rates, and in different locations. That's not true. Of course, the word race is also a term we use to distinguish between groups with different physical traits, namely skin color. Are there really different races? Take a gander at Acts 17.26, where it is written that God, from one man, made every nation of men. It's clear then that the Bible teaches that there is one race, the human race. The Bible is also clear that all people on the earth 
are descendants of Adam and Eve who were created by God. Check Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Easy enough. God created two people in his image, male and female, and told them to increase in number. So Adam and Eve are mom and dad of the human race. Then their children had children, and those children had children, and so on and so forth for many generations until, according to Genesis 6, 9, the world's population was reduced to eight people who were protected inside an ark during a global flood. And those eight people later walked off the ark, and according to Genesis 9:19, from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Oh, wait a second. What do I mean scattered? Well, jump over to Genesis 11, and let's talk about an event known as the Tower of Babel. Basically, because of the sinful actions of the descendants of Noah, the Lord confused their language and scattered them from there over all the earth. That's pretty clear and concise. Okay, so we've got lots of people who are descendants of the eight folks who came off the ark, and now they have been scattered all over the earth. That explains that we are still one race and that different groups of people ended up in different locations. But how do we get a bunch of different colored people if we are all one race? Well, follow along. This, of course, is a simplified explanation, but the basic principles are true. We all have a pigment in our bodies called melanin, which, depending on different variables, produces different shades of the one main skin color we all possess. Several genes control the amount of melanin produced and thus the variability in the skin shade. In fact, it's easy for one couple to produce a wide range of skin shade variability in just one generation, as we'll see in just a moment. Time for a quick genetics lesson. DNA is the molecule of heredity that is passed from parents to children. A child inherits 23 chromosomes from each parent. Each chromosome pair contains hundreds of genes which regulate the physical development of the child. However, to illustrate basic genetic principles pertaining to the topic, we'll just talk about two genes, the genes that control the production of melanin. So, let capital A and capital B symbolize versions of the gene that code for large amounts of melanin, while little a and little b code for small amounts. Got it? Easy. Check this out. Take a look at the upper left. Let's say dad contributes capital A, capital B genes, and mom contributes capital A, capital B genes as well. Together, they will produce a child with capital A, capital A, capital B, and capital B. This is a kid with a lot of melanin, thus he will have very dark skin. Easy to see. Here's the bigger point, though. Let's say dad contributes capital A, capital B, and mom contributes little a and little b. Well, the child's skin will be middle brown shade, the combination of capital A, little a, and capital B, little b, which, by the way, represents a majority of the world's population. Not only that, but if each parent is capital A, little a, capital B, little b, the combinations that could be produced in their children could result in a very wide range of skin shades in just one generation. So. Since Adam and Eve were the first people ever, it makes sense to conclude that God placed in them a combination of genes that could produce all different shades of skin we see. Those same combinations would be present in Noah and the seven other people who boarded the ark. And because God dispersed people at the Tower of Babel, he dispersed the population, thereby isolating gene pools in the different people groups. Over time, different cultures formed in different locations with certain features like skin shade becoming predominant. And here we are today. And since we all go back to Noah and his family, it makes sense that we are all different shades of brown. One race, multiple people groups, just like the Bible teaches. Simplified for sure, but enough said. Okay. Can't say it any faster. You might, you know, have some objections or whatever, but the gist of it, and it's not, what we're not saying is we don't celebrate different nations or recognize those things, right? But when the Bible talks about race, it's actually not talking about the color of someone's skin. When the Bible talks about the differences between different people, it's talking about, as he said, people that come from different nations, different tribes, different languages, or people groups. But here's the deal. You've got to understand this. In Scripture, there is not one, not one, not one single reference to them being differentiated by how they look. That is us. That is not Scripture. There's not one. Instead, it's about geography or culture. Or nationality. 
Now, it can get distorted as it has, but it's not the Bible's intention nor what it says. All people, nations, tribes, land, all originated with Adam and Eve. So there aren't multiple races biblically, just one human race. And that's where we read Acts 17. He mentioned it in 1726. From one man, he made every nation of men. This is what scripture says. That they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. In fact, the Bible goes out of its way to not make physical appearance a way of separating or differentiating people. It goes out of its way. This is where Apostle Paul, or excuse me, Peter in the New Testament says that Jesus is breaking down in Scripture and the church is breaking down these cultural divides and these geographic and ethnic barriers. Acts 10, Peter says this, God does not show favoritism but accepts men from every nation. That's Scripture. That phrase, this is important, God does not show favoritism. It's a beautiful Greek word, this show favoritism. Proso polemtes, which is this. He does not lay hold or look at man or woman's face, is the literal saying. So it says, God does not look at a person's face. That's not how he distinguishes us. You ever had somebody manipulate with you with their facial expression or make you feel bad about because of their facial expression? Or you're looking at the way that they're smiling or looking at you, and it's determining whether they are good or bad or true or false. And the scripture says he doesn't look at the face, but what does he look at? The heart, the thoughts, the intentions, which even God is not looking at the color of your skin. Again, that doesn't mean we don't celebrate it, don't hear what I'm not saying. We can celebrate our nationalities. We can celebrate different cultures and have them come under the beauty of Christ. But God is not just looking at your face. So what does this look like in community as we start to close? Galatians 3, 28 is where we started. He says, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And this takes place in a Christian community. In the church, we should be on the forefront of this understanding, especially with the value of every human being. And he says it in the verse before, as we started, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. That, that is a picture you're supposed to get, clothing yourself. That's what we are supposed to look like, and the skin we actually put on is Christ. Christ was not white. Christ was not black. He was actually brown, right? But it wasn't just that he was brown. He represented humanity, which is why what he did in his act of saving is for all humanity, not just one race or one color. In fact, what's interesting is the book of Revelation. We see the apostle John describes ultimately the end that gives us a picture of the end and what heaven will be like. You could look around this room and have an idea of what heaven will be like. But here's what he says. I saw a vast crowd too great to count 
from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a mighty shout, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. That vision we have to keep in our heart, and it's one that's very deeply rooted in the Bible. And this beautiful Hebrew term, shalom. I don't know if you know what shalom means. It's, it's a, a, a greeting, a farewell. A lot of times when we get to go on biblical study tours with the Pastor G. Yoon, often uh, about annually we get to go to Israel and we get to see and study scripture from the land, but you will hear the word shalom all the time. Shalom, shalom, the greeting, the farewell. But also, it's much deeper than that. This word means peace or often health or prosperity, but even deeper. There's a theologian named Cornelius Neil Plantiga, and he writes of this word shalom. He says, it's the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Let me paint you a picture from John Ortberg's book. It's all up here so you can read along as he gives a picture of what he believes shalom looks like practically. He writes this, in a world where shalom prevailed, all marriages would be healthy and all children would be safe. Those who have too much would give to those who have too little. Israeli and Palestinian children would play together on the West Bank. Their parents would build homes for one another. In offices and corporate boardrooms, executives would secretly scheme to help their colleagues succeed. They would compliment them behind their backs. Tabloids would be filled with accounts of courage and moral beauty. Talk shows would feature mothers and daughters who love each other deeply and wives who give birth to their husbands' children. Disagreements would be settled with grace and civility. There would still be lawyers, perhaps, but they would have really useful jobs like delivering pizza. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't write this. Like delivering pizza, which would be non-fat and low in cholesterol. Doors would have no locks. Cars would have no alarms. Schools would no longer need police presence or even hall monitors. Students and teachers and janitors would honor and value one another's work. At recess, every kid would get picked for a team. People would be neither bored nor hurried. No father would ever again say, I'm too busy to a disappointed child. Our national sleep deficit would be paid off. Starbucks would still exist, but would only sell decaf. Divorce courts and battered women's shelters would be turned into community recreation centers. Every time one, one human was touched and touched another, it would be to express encouragement, affection, and delight. No one would be lonely or afraid. People of different races would join hands. They would honor and be enriched by their difference and be united in their common humanity. 
and in the center of the entire community would be its magnificent architect and most glorious resident, the God, whose presence fills every person with unceasing splendor and ever-increasing delight. Ooh, I, I practiced this before. Um, what a beautiful picture. That's shalom. That's what the church should be about. When we say the gospel and the gospel and race, you can say the Bible and race, and you can cherry pick some passage that makes you defend some sort of segregation or demoralizing and demonizing another. That's not the full scripture. Because the full scripture is encapsulated by the gospel message. Which we keep trying to make sure you understand that the gospel is not music. Although it can have music in it. But the gospel is the good news. And we have this on the screen. That God became man in Jesus Christ. Lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. In our place, our place, my place. On the third day after his death and burial, he rose from the dead, proving that he is the Son of God, offering this gift of salvation to all who repent and believe this gospel, this good news. Not advice, but good news. Every week.